optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're just seeing a broken time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey guys, this is Tim Ferriss, and this is an experimental episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. It's a little noisy. I'm at the Facebook offices in Menlo Park, California. Just got out of some stuff, but I wanted to get this out to you. So this particular episode is me in conversation with two financial experts, two hedge fund experts. And those two names are Mark Hart, and I've had a lot of experience and time with Mark Hart. Uh, Mark is the founder of Corriente Partners, an investment fund focused on placing long, short equity trades based on macroeconomic themes. He's done a ton, uh, including uh, basically earning a sizable fantastic return on his positions during the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis, which is one of the single best performances of that entire downturn. He's really good at spotting patterns, and I've done some work with him, which we'll get into. And then there is Raul, and he is the owner of 
Real Vision Television, from which this interview is pulled, among other things. But he writes and publishes the, the Global Macro Investor, an elite macroeconomic and investment strategy research service for many of the world's leading hedge funds, pension funds, banks, and sovereign wealth funds. And he does a lot more than that, of course, but I'll try to keep these introductions short. Uh, he is also the author of The Endgame, which is an article that turned out to be one of the most read financial uh, pieces in the history of the internet. It's a fascinating conversation between the three of us about business, lifestyle, investing, all of the above. And for those of you who are interested in Real Vision Television, which includes all sorts of names that if you're involved with finance, you might recognize Rick Rule, Mark Hart, Kyle Bass, Mike Novogratz, the list goes on and on and on, really reversing the dumbed down trend that you see in mass media for discussing investment and finance. Uh, and it usually costs $400 a year. If you use the code Tim, T-I-M, then you can get it for $300 a year. I get no profit participation in this. I'm just doing it because I had fun doing this interview. I make nothing from it. In any case, without further ado, please meet both Mark and Raul and myself in this conversation. Thanks. So Tim, Mark, thanks very much for getting this all together. I think it's going to be fascinating. Uh, Mark, you did a, our first ever masterclass, and you talked a lot about not only your trading philosophy and, and how you do things and how you look at markets, but you broadened it out into how you look at your life and lifestyle and how you broaden your knowledge base. And one of the people you mentioned was Tim. And I said, well, it'd be fascinating to find out how Tim and you have interacted, and we can all have a joint conversation to see what we can all learn from these kind of things, because a lot of people are fascinated behind that, that, those concepts, because people don't look at their lifestyle as much as they look at their career and stuff like that. So, I don't know, Tim, do you want to give a little bit of background about yourself, and Mark, just also for people who don't know about you, yourself as well? Sure. I uh, have been in the Bay Area, San Francisco, uh, related area for about 15 years, and I really have two primary careers, I suppose. One is as a, a teacher and author, so I've written books, all of which sound like scammy infomercial products. So the Four Hour Workweek, Four Hour Body, the Four Hour Chef. We could talk about the titling some other time, but the books really the, the common theme across all of them is trying to deconstruct world class performers and look at how the anomalies replicate unusual results over and over and over again. Whether that's uh, in the CEO sphere or in the uh, say Olympic level professional athletic sphere or looking at accelerated learning and uh, so-called prodigies in that arena. How can someone pull tools from those people so that they can replicate results people usually associate with some type of God-given talent? And uh, there are different, different types of analyses we do for that. The, the second career is really uh, startup angel investing and advising. So I was uh, seed level and still am advisor to Uber, Evernote, investor in Twitter, Facebook, about 35 companies uh, total up to this point in time. So those are, those are the two areas where I spend a lot of my, my energy. Fantastic. Mark? Well, um, I'm a hedge fund manager. Uh, I've been involved in the hedge fund world for probably 16 years, uh, running my own funds for 13, almost, uh, almost 14 years. And uh, as we'll go into all the specifics, I've run several different types of funds, but typically my focus is on macro. Um, you know, it's interesting to me, you know, we had our interview uh, a few months ago um, and I did mention Tim as, as, a, as a big influence uh, on me and specifically how that, how that came to pass. Um, 
I was on top of the world, and then I sort of crashed down to the bottom in, in 2009. I had some really bad times. And it's about that time I read uh, a book called The Art of Learning uh, by a guy named Josh Waitzkin, who's become one of my closest friends and absolutely brilliant man. And Josh was this world-class chess player, world-class uh, martial artist, and the book was about his learning process. So I felt like I needed some help. Um, on process. And I reached out to Josh. <clears throat> Turned out uh, he did some consulting with hedge funds on process. And, um, and he agreed to, uh, to work with me and my team on my process. And he suggested that we bring Tim uh, into the fold as well. I didn't know Tim before, but Tim has written these books, the For Our Body, the For Our Work Week at the time, since then, the For Our Chef. Um, read the For Our Body, which absolutely blew me away. And Tim and Josh started to implement, you know, various processes for me and my team. And while it didn't necessarily, it wasn't, I wasn't able to necessarily turn my hedge fund performance uh, around, although I'm still managing money, um, it completely changed my life, completely changed my outlook. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, when you suggest the possibility of bringing Tim on uh, and, and, and interviewing him, I thought it would be great. And what I thought was particularly interesting is, you know, in the hedge fund industry, my peers, I mean, these are some of the smartest people in the world and some of the most driven people in the world. And they put enormous, you know, effort into what they do. And yet, you know, most of them have never even considered putting any, the same sort of effort into kind of improving their quality of life. Um, so uh, I thought it'd be great for some people in the financial world to, you know, see Tim and to, to get a sense of, you know, really what, how far you can improve yourself, how far you can take things. Something yeah. that would be interesting is, so Tim, I'd love to think, because I've heard Mark, Mark's mindset, but you went in to see this troubled hedge fund manager who was having a tough time. How did you evaluate the situation? How did you think you could help him? What tools did he need to do things with? And, how did, you, how did you go about that process? Well, I think there, there are a number of ways to try to, say, improve the performance of a company, a group of people, or even a single person. And in this particular case, of course, the, the landscape of macro investing, uh, hedge fund management, is not a landscape that I'm going to understand as well as someone like Mark. But if you look at it almost like uh, rally car racing, so that's, that's, I'm fascinated by rally car racing. <laughs> I've done some experiments there. But you have a racetrack that is basically designed to kill you. It's not intended to be as safe as possible. The, the terrain, uh, the, the path is somewhat known, but the terrain is unknown. It could be raining, it could be sleeting. And uh, Mark knows where he wants to go, but I can help potentially improve the car itself, so the vehicle, which is the physical body, upon which everything is predicated. So people tend to have this sort of Cartesian separation of mind and body, but at, at the end of the day, you have certain levels of neurotransmitters that are produced at a certain rate, depleted at a certain rate, and uh, that is the rate-limiting step in your mental performance. So if you want to have better levels of working memory, a, a sustained attention, and, and so on, you can optimize those by optimizing the car, i.e. the body in this case. And you can use exercise to, say, improve a production of uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor and all these things that are very, very interesting. Uh, and then you can also look at process. So I think Josh is, is one of the best in the world, and Josh is a very dear friend of mine, at looking at uh, repeatable process. So what are, the, what are the daily 
the daily habits and the ways that you approach turning your effort on or off, say, for productivity and recovery throughout the day that you can tweak. So that would be driving the car. So we can look at the process of you, instead of having the shifter down here in a normal H pattern that you might have, maybe we should elevate that just like they do in rally car so that it's, it's, it's closer to the steering wheel. And how can you do the equivalent throughout the day? And may, that might be incorporating different types of sets of questions that you apply to certain scenarios. It might be deciding beforehand, for instance, with a lot of my startups, when you scale to a certain point, you're going to encounter the following types of problems. So how do you plan for the, that type of crisis management in, in advance so that you're not reactive, uh, so that you can be analytical when most people would be emotional? And those are some of the tools in the toolkit that I would usually try to bring to bear in a situation like that. And uh, Josh and I have very complementary approaches, uh, which is part of the reason that we enjoy hanging out so much and working together. And so Mark, so, so Tim walks in and says, okay, this is what you need to do. How did you take that on board? And, and then how did you engage with that process and kind of then the, start to see the benefits flowing through and how did that change you? Well, you know, initially what I tried to do was incorporate 40 different new processes <laughs> into my life. Uh, you know, diet, exercise, meditation, all kinds of things. Um, and I wasn't particularly successful. And I peeled it back a little bit and started to implement sort of one process at a time. You know, nailing breakfast was a huge one for me. I mean, what, what do you mean by nailing breakfast? I mean, having a perfect breakfast. It's, it's what's going to fuel you for the day. It's what's going to, you know, it, it, it nourishes you. It's something you always have time for because it's the beginning of the day. Nothing's going to run over and, and block it out. So, you know, nailing breakfast, nailing your morning routine was the, really the first key. Everything from that, you know, built. Um, started to implement, you know, there are a variety of things I did. I'm, I got into martial arts. So I'm, you know, pretty much addicted to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, and both Josh and Tim are, you know, expert, you know, really world-class uh, martial artists as well. Um, but part of that was even, okay, breaking down the workouts. The, the times, you know, w what time of the day are you going to be the most productive, the most creative? You know, usually it's after your mind is cleared. Are you going to clear your mind? Well, you know, your normal conscious mind has thousands of thoughts running through it constantly. Um, but, you know, the key is accessing the, the subconscious mind where you're really doing your thinking. So how do you create these periods of time um, when you can best access that? So maybe it's breaking up your workout into two workouts a day that are half the length. Maybe it's implementing a five or ten minute a day meditation. Um, and then it's structuring your, your work day um, so that and you're not answering emails during your most productive time. Um, and, uh, and then it's self-tracking. Um, and a lot of it starts with uh, establishing a baseline, so knowing where you are. And I think that just to give a very common example of where people get themselves into trouble, if, like most people, you, you take these extremely elite thinkers in the form of top hedge fund managers who have annual checkups once a year, and they make decisions based on the results of these blood tests that may come back in range or out of range. And typically the way that even a concierge medical service works is you have this checkup, you get back your blood values. Uh-oh, this is high, this is low. Here are two or three medications to correct these following things. And uh, you realize a few things very quickly. Number one, if you were to take that test the next day, the values would be different. So you want to always confirm 
uh, testing results. And you can apply that to many different types of thinking. Secondly, what you're interested in <clears throat> when you look at, say, blood values is not just a snapshot in time, because that's like trying to understand a World Cup game from one photograph. You want to understand trending. So you're better off having slightly less data, so lower resolution, but many snapshots, so you can look at where you're trending, as opposed to uh, trying to diagnose and treat based on a single point in time. And what that can do for you, for instance, in, in the traditional medical system in the United States, or conventional, I should say, you might be able to look at, say, your uric acid levels, so which is in some cases indicative of gout if it gets past a certain point. And you could be at the lower range of normal and be ratcheting up you know, 10, 20% per year, but you, the doctor won't flag it as a problem until you've crossed into sort of a gout symptomatic territory. But if you're, if you're taking those snapshots, you can catch it beforehand. And you can identify, say, dietary interventions. Well, perhaps we should reduce fructose. People tend to blame uh, gout and uric acid on protein intake. Well, fructose has a huge part to play in that. And, uh, but, but it all starts with establishing a baseline. So in the case of, say, a daily routine and a weekly routine, you could identify, and Mark could identify, during his states of flow, and we could talk about what that means, but when he feels effortless production, uh, like he's doing everything well on autopilot, what are the characteristics, what are the uh, prerequisites or the correlates to that? What are the tr potential triggers, right? And, and it starts with journaling. Similarly, what are the 20%, say, of activities or people that produce 80% of the negative emotions and bad decision-making? Let's start chronicling that. And once you start to identify those patterns, say, over a week of journaling, similarly with diet, right? So you could say, oh, well, you know, you're having a meltdown. This is not specific to Mark, but like person X is having, uh, they're getting very frustrated and angry at 11.30, but they're having coffee and a bagel for breakfast. It's like, okay, well, this might be a very easy fix. Just like a lot of people with IBS, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, simply have a gluten sensitivity. It's not like they need any type of, they don't have a small intestine bacterial uh, infection or anything like that. It's, it's just gluten. Um, so, but it starts with, with, with capturing your baseline. And it's, it's, it's astonishing to me how I used to do this and how many people will change many variables without first establishing where they are. Uh, so that's that's the, the the first step is you know where is the patient? <laughs> and it's, it's actually a similar thought process to how we look at markets as well. It's the same state of analyzing. If you just do, have a snapshot, you don't really know anything about anything. What you un need to understand is the history, where it, where it's come from, where it's going, and looking at a whole range of different parts of it before you can understand what's going on. I guess the, there's no question. But you know, one one of the really interesting things about what Tim does. I mean, you can take this, you can go as deep as you want. I mean, you could spend a lot of time and, and really tweak. A lot of a lot of uh, a lot of details, but you know this notion of ten thousand hours to mastery. Um, I mean, the way I think of you is is as a brain and body hacker, yeah. and you know how do you how do you really shortcut that? And um, and one of the things I, I thought might be interesting would be to, to actually point out maybe some of the some of the some of the easy hacks yeah. Uh, yeah, that sure. th that um, that people can use. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So and, uh, no, there's so many. And you know, it's, uh, just to sort of dispel some myths, maybe we could start there because the the ten. I'm very familiar with the research upon which the, the ten thousand hour rule, coined by Gladwell, or at least popularized by my Malcolm Gladwell, has been used. Uh, there are many, many ways to circumvent that in almost any skill. 
And I think that uh, my, the way I, I study the anomalies rather than discard them as outliers, if that makes sense. And uh, you know, I, I remember at some point, because I, I'm a sort of amateur uh, fan of, of finance and investing and whatnot. The angel investing is a whole separate story, very different from the public markets, certainly. But uh, I, I think there was at one point, <clears throat> uh, Warren Buffett was, was addressing uh, efficient market, efficient market uh, theory, and he said, well, you could say yes if you have 10,000 orangutans flipping quarters, like eventually you'll find like 10 orangutans who have flipped heads 100 times in a row, and uh, statistically, sure, you could point out that that doesn't necessarily indicate they have any skill at coin flipping, blah, 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 but if they all happen to come from a particular place in Omaha, you might want to go see like what the zookeeper is doing. And so I look for, I look for particularly odd concentrations of anomalies. And you can find them in, in many different uh, gyms. I, I happen to look at athletic performance a lot because, and I'm going to come back to your, 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 your point of, of easy tips, because many people in, say, the hedge fund world or the, uh, you pick, pick the sphere of elite performance that is non-physical, at some point they decided that they were genetically predetermined to be able to do certain things and not be able to do other things. So they were always the fat kid, I'm just big boned, that's not something I can change. And so they are partially complete in that way. They're extremely world-class at optimizing for, say, reading technicals and uh, trading in a certain fashion or uh, predicting kind of doomsday scenarios and, and formulating positions accordingly. But they've, in their mind, they, they view as one of the unchangeable aspects of themselves strength, endurance, sleep, I've always had insomnia, whatever it might be. And by showing them, well, here's a 12-year-old high school girl who a year and a half ago uh, had never been to a weight room and now she deadlifts 450 pounds for repetitions, maybe you could do this, <laughs> uh, is, it, it offers them a glimpse into what is possible. And uh, as, as an example of uh, some of the very easy things that people could do, uh, if you wanted to develop, say, a basic ability in Spanish, okay, conversational ability in Spanish, you could look at someone named Michelle Thomas, M-I-C-H-E-L, and the original recordings, and you could get to a basic level of conversational Spanish in a week. You could get to fluency in 8 to 12 weeks, which is something that I've looked at very closely, language learning. I think you can become func uh, functionally fluent in almost any language in 8 to 12 uh, weeks. Another example would be breakfast, as Mark said, and uh, specifically uh, 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking up. And could it be 20 grams? Could it be 40 grams? Could it be 20 minutes? Could it be 40 minutes? Sure. But 30 within 30 is easy to remember. And the, the good program or protocol that you follow is better than the perfect program or protocol that you don't. And I think this is also where a lot of um, top minds in finance fail, is they try to change too many things at once. And there's a decision fatigue that sets in uh, when you're trying to acquire new habits. But... Which is, which is why when I, when I start with someone who's very busy, very driven, I never start with exercise, personally. I try not to because that's, that, is an, that is an additional activity that gets layered on top of their current obligations. But you have to eat breakfast or you have to eat. <laughs> You're going to, that is a default behavior and we're just going to swap in a new meal. Right? So if you were to have, say, lentils, you could eat them straight out of the can. <laughs> if, uh, if you want uh, some spinach, could just eat, eat raw spinach if you, if you want, or microwave, it doesn't really matter. 
and two whole, whole, whole eggs every morning. If, if you were to do that, and I won't digress into all the details of why those three are a very interesting combination, um, but um, spinach, lentils, and eggs. You could prepare it in three minutes. If, if, if you have that breakfast within, say, 30 minutes of waking up, uh, it's not uncommon if you have more than 20% body fat that you'll lose 20 pounds in the first month, particularly if you're, if you're a male. And uh, that would be a very simple hack. It's just like, okay, just that, that's your new breakfast. Try that for a month. Don't change anything else. And you'll very typically see people lose 15 to 20 pounds. If people have trouble sleeping, they have lifelong insomniacs, as, as I was, was, uh, was for a very long time. Uh, they feel groggy in the morning, even if they get a lot of sleep <clears throat> or think they've gotten a lot of sleep. It's, it's oftentimes from low blood sugar and not from the length of sleep or, or lack thereof. So you could have a, a tablespoon of unsweetened almond butter before you go to sleep. And you'll see a lot of people who are chronically fatigued fixed just like that. And I, I diagnosed that for myself by implanting a glucose monitor in my side intended for type 1 diabetics. It gave me a readout 24-7 that I could then correlate to my food journal. <laughs> I do all the crazy guinea pig stuff so that other people don't have to. Um, and uh, if you have to have a cheat meal, so let's say you're like, you know, I'm going to go out with my with my, my, uh, my in-laws, they're Italian, I'm gonna have to eat pasta, you know, I, I'm really trying to be good, but I have to eat pasta, all right, what can you do? Well, you could have uh, a bit of vinegar, you could like have a tablespoon of vinegar before the meal, which will help to lower the glycemic index. So your insulin and glycemic or glucose response to that meal. Um, there are all sorts of tiny little tricks, and the key for me at least is finding the smallest behavior, the smallest change that will produce the, the disproportionately largest result for someone so they continue to take my advice. That's it. I want to give them the minimum effective dose, just like medicine. I don't want to give you too little because you won't get any result. I give you too much, you're going to have side effects, societal, financial, otherwise, familial. But if I give you just the smallest thing, I say, all right, look, I know you hate exercise. You don't want to do any of this stuff. I want you to do kettlebell swings one set once a week in the following way. It's going to take three minutes, Kettlebell can fit in 12 square inches on the floor. That's all I want you to do, no more. And uh, if I can use that as the gateway drug into the behavioral change that I want, then I can get them to do almost anything once they start seeing the result. You want to put on 20, 30 pounds of muscle in a month, you can do it. Uh, if you have, you know, let's just say if you're 170 pounds or more to start with. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So, if you want to learn how to memorize a thousand digits a string of a thousand random digits. I, you can train someone to do that in a week. And uh, so these, these impossibles, once you take one of them and reframe them as a possible. So for instance, when I, when I did genetic testing through Navigenics, 23andMe, et cetera, uh, I have something called a nonsense allele for the actin-3 gene. All that means is I shouldn't be able to really produce fast twitch muscle fiber. So I'm doomed. Can't be fast, can't be strong, et cetera. Well, it turns out when I took a muscle biopsy out of my my, the side of my leg, my lastus batter, uh, my, what is it, the, uh, yeah, vastus lateralis, I believe, uh, and, I, and we analyzed it, um, I had a very high percentage of type 2A muscle fibers, which is trainable, right? So I was able to basically renegotiate my genetic destiny, at least according to the current state-of-the-art testing. And uh, so I, I always feel like, you know, outside of very 
few areas, maybe the law in some cases, <laughs> reality is negotiable. And that includes physical performance. And that's a great way to shock people into believing that all these other things are possible. The thing that I've looked at, that the thing I'm spending more time thinking about is time itself. Yeah. Time is, I think, one of the hardest things to control because it's a concept we don't really know how to grasp and how to deal with. I think, how do you, how do you, how, how do you look at time and how do you control that element that gets people kind of breathless with the fear that I just can't do all this stuff? Yeah, I, th I think of time as one of several currencies. So I think it's very easy to think of, and normal to think of money as a currency, because it is. But what is a currency? A currency is something that you trade for something else. Right? So you, you use that money uh, to purchase an experience or a possession, let's just say. Similarly, you have time, perhaps you have mobility as another currency. And time is non-renewable, whereas you know, capital is renewable. So in the hierarchy of prioritization, you know, the time should take past a certain point on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, <laughs> right? Time should take, uh, should become your number one priority in allocating that effectively. Uh, so I, I think that if, if you don't have time, it's an indication of not having sufficiently clear priorities. I think that's it. And, and when I think about time, again, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, personally, I'm less interested in can I cram more into a day. Yeah. It's how do I get the, most, the highest quality of life yeah. out, of the, out of the time that I've got. Right. So I, th I think there are uh, many different ways to approach it, and there are many people who do who do a lot of thinking in this area. Uh, I think I, I think that uh, there are a lot of contemporary thinkers. You know, David Allen. There are a lot of, uh, of course, you can go as far back, Ben Franklin and beyond, Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think Peter Drucker, the effective executive, is a fantastic place to start, and the, the focus on uh, effectiveness over efficiency. So uh, uh, effectiveness being choosing your activities wisely, and then efficiency being doing those activities well. But doing something well does not make it important. And I think there's a lot of, it's very easy to conflate those two in a world where you are, you are, you are constantly hit with propaganda for the latest tools. But the principles are more important than the tools. Right? If, you're, if you're a good artist, you can use a crayon or a piece of chalk or a paintbrush. Uh, but if, if you're constantly just devising the latest tool and you never develop those artistic skills, it doesn't matter. And similarly, I think the, the deciding what is important, deciding what is, uh, which is oftentimes what makes you the most uncomfortable, uh, I think, um, the thing you least want to do, <laughs> a pretty good indicator, uh, the general principles of, of thinking about prioritization uh, remain fairly fairly consistent, I think. And for me, uh, and many of the top performers that I see uh, in, say, just in the startup world, because it's a very exaggerated, uh, it's a very, ex it's, a, it's a world in which you can look at, every little problem gets magnified dramatically because of the velocity at which many of these companies are growing. So a small mistake turns into a very big mistake very quickly, uh, which makes it easier to see. Uh, and for, for people who are growing at the rate of, say, an Uber, right, uh, which is unprecedented in the history of, of startups, uh, or anywhere else, um, I can apply this in my own life, but 
if you have, say, five to-do items, what is the one of those five that, if completed, renders the other four unimportant, or that makes the other four easier to solve, easier to address? Right? And, and trying to pick the lead domino in that respect and prioritize and allocate time accordingly, I think is just is a very simplistic way, but effective way to go about uh, picking that, and I like to think of it as the lead domino that just knocks over the others. Or, which, which of these decisions can I focus on that will prevent a thousand decisions in the future? And that's a very sort of engineer-like way to approach, say, um, engineers or computer scientists have a general uh, hate, hatred of <laughs> repetitive tasks. So if something needs to be repeated, they want to create a script or a program to run that. And uh, you can do that by deciding what your decision-making framework is in advance. Uh, so th those are a few of the ways that I think uh, very simple, but simple, simple works. If the solution that you find is complicated, it's probably not the right solution. So, you know, Tim, I, I guess, you know, and, and it gets back to what I was saying a little bit earlier, you know, you've got people in the, the hedge fund industry and the investment industry. I mean, these are typically driven people. They're intelligent people. And they focus their efforts on you know, their work, and and it's uh, it's satisfying, somewhat satisfying to extremely satisfying. Um, what you and Josh Waits can have you know helped me do is you know access other parts of my life and and uh, and parts of myself and do so very easily. Um, uh, where where the the I guess the the, the delta. In, in terms of improvement, is is massive for very small, you know, amounts of effort. Um, and I, I think that you know, hedge fund managers, particularly, they're the exact right people who are, who are poised to kind of take advantage of some of the tools and and uh, and some of the tricks that you uh, you employ. I mean, two things that that really come to mind. Uh, you like to talk about like taking ice baths. I take I take freezing cold showers, and it's it's absolute nirvana. Um, another thing that maybe you could talk a little bit about is like lucid dreaming and sure. using lucid dreaming to you know massively uh, uh, improve uh, performance and improve that uh, you know, sort of conscious subconscious uh, brain uh, connection. Sure. And maybe you know I know you've used lucid dreaming to uh, to train in wrestling in high school. Yeah, yeah, no, I can talk about both. So the 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 ice baths. Uh, or cold therapy, and there are different ways to do it. You can use ice packs on the back of the neck. Um, really came out of conversations I had with a former NASA researcher named Ray Cronice. And he had tripled his rate of fat loss, which he, <laughs> he's an expert in thermodynamics. <laughs> he measured everything very meticulously after uh, becoming fascinated by how um, Phelps could eat, you know, 10 plus thousand calories per day. Why would that be? And he started looking at the effects of water exposure at different temperatures on caloric expenditure. Long story short, uh, cold exposure can improve immune function, uh, be very effective as an antidepressant therapy. Uh, it affects hormones, including things like adiponectin, that then consequently lead to an increased rate of, of fat loss in many cases, you know, thermogenesis related to fat. And that was in the four-hour body. A lot of people kind of scoffed at it. It's now since been in the New York Times probably half a dozen times. I think it was just written about a month or two ago. And it's, it's extremely effective. And it's an example, like you said, of something that takes next to no time. You take two bags of ice, put it in the tub, jump in for five minutes. And it can have a tremendous effect on you, not only for the subsequent, say, four to five hours where you feel 
like you're on cloud nine in many cases, where you just you, your your mood and your mental performance is highly elevated. It's not subtle. Uh, to the longer term cumulative fat loss effects, which can be really tremendous. Uh, I mean, tripling your rate of fat loss just by a, a, a very short intervention like that. So that would, that would be one interesting example. Um, I've been looking at recently the the opposite, which is using um, heat shock, so saunas for increasing, say, growth hormone release in combination with types of exercise. So studying how the extremes uh, impact your physiology is very interesting to me. But the lucid dreaming is um, lucid dreaming is a fascinating subject. So, uh, for those people who aren't familiar, lucid dreaming is when you are dreaming and you become conscious of the fact that you are dreaming. And uh, it's it doesn't have to be anything woo woo. It's there's nothing woo woo about it. And they've they've demonstrated. I think it was at Stanford. They've they pr- they proved that it existed by having people uh, memorize before sleep subjects. Uh, eye, eye movement patterns, because uh, in REM sleep, your eye movement in the dream correlates to your physical movement when you're laying down. So they could do like left, left, right, left, left, right, right. And they could do that, and they could track with a, with an EEG or, or, or other tools that they were in REM sleep and in fact sleeping. So they're like, okay, now I'm dreaming, just checking in with the researcher, you know, left, left, right, right, et cetera. And when you develop the ability to extend your lucid dreaming experience, and there's a great book called Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming by Stephen LaBerge that uh, makes it quite simple. But there, there are exercises that you implement throughout your waking day, uh, which are called reality checks, <laughs> uh, where you'll, you'll look at aspects of reality that change very frequently in a dream state. Uh, so complex patterns, if you had, say, tiles that were laid a certain way longitudinally on a floor, you could look away and look back. And if changes orientation you're dreaming. If it doesn't, you're probably not dreaming. If you look at a, a digital watch display, uh, that will also, because you're constantly recreating the landscape in a dream, that will change if you look away and look back. Um, and, and you start to develop, and this, this, this also pairs very well with something like transcendental meditation or Vipassana meditation, but you get to a point where you can go into a dream state, no longer view sleep as a waste of time. A lot of people do. Um, and you can further reinforce or develop your skills while you're sleeping. So the example that you referred to, you can get to the point where you're spending the vast majority of your REM sleep cycles you know, awake in your dream. And what I did when I was a competitive wrestler, and uh, you know, I, was, I went to prep nationals and was an All-American in, in my weight class, uh, but uh, my, one of my idols at the time was John Smith, who uh, was an incredible Olympian, and competitor went on to then, uh, I think it was Oklahoma State, and dominated as coach, really pioneered low, low leg attacks. And uh, I would, in my dream, because I'd watched so many videos of John Smith, I would train with John Smith. And it, it, there was a very direct transfer uh, of skill improvement uh, from, the, uh, from that state to subsequent practices, which is not that crazy if you think about it, because there are many studies that have looked at, say, uh, skiing aerialists, so the people who, different types of ski jumpers or divers, and looking at the impact of replacing a training session with visualization. And they get to see the same, they, they, see, they see gains in performance. Uh, and that's exactly what you're doing when you are dreaming, but you get the benefit of sort of a simulated kinesthetic experience. So it's, uh, it's a fascinating tool that is really underutilized and underexploited, and it's fun. 
It's so much fun. Uh, which, uh, at the end of the day, it's like, look, like, what are we doing this all for? I mean, and you get to a point when you're playing the game, and it is a game, and we all choose the games we want to play, but it's like, you get to a point, and you're like, okay, I've proven I'm really good at this. I'm able to meet my needs. I can certainly satisfy a lot of my wants. Like, what are these psychological states that I want more of? What are the psychological states that I want less of? And the lucid dreaming is wonderful in the sense that it not only improves performance, it helps you develop present state awareness, uh, and it puts you into a similar state if you practice lucid dreaming, because throughout the day you're doing these reality checks, what is that doing? It's like meditating for 15 seconds, 10 times a day. So you develop a calmness and awareness of how you're feeling so that you don't make emotionally based decisions that are bad for you. And that translates very directly to investing, particularly for the stuff that I don't do much of. I mean, I tend to hold stuff for a long time in the private markets because that's my game that I've chosen to play because I know my lesser self will make bad decisions if I'm allowed to play in some of the, the sandboxes that you guys play in. Uh, but uh, certainly, all the more reason for I think people in the, in the hedge fund world, if, if they're making daily or weekly or monthly decisions about about positions and whatnot, to have a consistent practice so that they can become the observer of their emotional self. But that's the question is, how do you know, because you identify, you know yourself and you know you wouldn't be a good short-term trader, for example, yeah. but you know if you've got a longer strategic view, you're probably, that's your skill set. Yeah. How do you learn that? Because that's a, a lot of people um, <clears throat> don't get this bit when certain people are good at certain types of things. How do you understand what you're good at? Test. You throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and you see what sticks and you see what you enjoy and you see what you, you dislike. In my particular case, uh, I, I've actually, I've done, despite myself, done reasonably well in the public markets with a handful of, of, uh, of stocks that I've bought. I mean, Pixar was the first stock I ever bought. And then there's, there's a point where I bought Amazon. Amazon did really, really well. But in 2008, when everything was going to, well, seemingly, if you watch too much television, going to hell in a handbasket, uh, and uh, I spend, just by the very nature of, uh, you know, I have a blog with two million readers per month or so, I, I, I'm online a decent amount to, to write and communicate. So I'm exposed to a lot of this noise, this, this chicken little, the sky is falling, uh, hysteria, for instance, in 2008. And uh, it, what I realized about myself is that if I can watch a chart of the value of my holding going up and down, and, and Mr. Market is tapping me on the shoulder, asking, are you sure you, are you sure you want to hold this? Would you like to sell? I really think you should sell. But wait, 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 it just went down. Maybe you should buy some more. You want to buy some more? That monkey mind is very untrained in me. It is so poorly behaved, and it's such a bastardly little saboteur in my mind. I need to create constraints that allow me to utilize my strengths while mitigating my weaknesses. And the way I do that is by investing in startups where I have an informational advantage, where I have a product advantage, and I can also poll, say, you know, a million plus people who are 20 to 40, 25 to 40 year old males in metropolitan cities, primarily on the coasts, who have high disposable income. I can get a very good read on those things, do a lot of front end due diligence, make a decision, and then I'm locked in. And that protects me against second guessing and making subsequent decisions that are going to sabotage the good work I did in the first place. Uh, but I learned that by 
trying different types of investing. So do you think maybe, you talked about journals before, which I think is an interesting concept because there's a certain intellectual integrity when you have to write it down and be honest with yourself. And I think a lot of people in investing aren't honest with themselves. I think it was Paul Tudor Jones would say to me that, that the thing that he learns about what makes a good investor is to have your time horizon and your investment horizon the same. So your idea time horizon usually is, I think the dollar is going to go up over three years. I'm going to put that trade on over two weeks. That's wrong because it's a big mismatch. And it's all of that intellectual integrity about what you're actually trying to do and who you are. And then it allows you to do that, I guess, to, yeah. then, to then focus exactly where you know your strengths are. Definitely. And I think that, that uh, journaling is one example, I think has tremendous value, uh, especially if you don't view yourself as a writer. Because what, what writing allows you to do, and we could call it journaling just so people don't get intimidated, it is allowing you to freeze your thoughts in a form that you can analyze. You're not going to take the time to record yourself for hours and go over it. But you can write two pages every morning. And what I would encourage people to do, particularly if they're dealing with the stresses of uh, sort of a high-pressure trading environment or investment environment, is write down their fears and worries and explore those because it will clarify what they are. Sometimes they'll end up unfounded, which can remove them as an influence that could lead to bad decisions or... Uh, impulsive decisions. Other times, it'll clarify ways that those risks can, can be mitigated. But when it's when it's when it's simply a five second worry that is sort of on loop that repeats itself every hour or two, you never get that level of of resolution. Uh, so literally, have some coffee, have some tea, five to ten minutes in the morning, just freehand, write about what you're worried about for the day, what you're what you're fearful of. It's hugely pragmatic. It's not just a self-indulgent, poetic so, exercise. So what do you do when you... So I've written that down, and I've done it for a week. Now, how do I analyze that? And how long, how long do I need to do it before I've got a decent data set to deal with? And, and what do I do with it when I've got it? Well, so, okay, this is, this is a good question. So I, I thought when I started doing this that the value would be in spotting the patterns, going back and analyzing. And there, there is value in that. But part of the value is you're taking these muddy distracting thoughts and imprisoning them on paper so that you can get on with your day and act analytically and effectively without them, without irrational concerns affecting your rational process. So you're just taking it out of your mind, plonking it over there for the time being. That's it. <laughs> okay. And it's, 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 it's <laughs> surprisingly effective and it's so simple. Yeah, I mean, some people do that at night. You know, if you're if you if you've got that, you know, you've got the night horrors and you're thinking about something, yeah. writing it down. Yeah, get it out of your head. It's out of your head, and then you can do it. You know, one of the interesting things that that you and Josh had me implement was uh, was you know, in terms of taking advantage of the subconscious mind, was you know, feeding myself questions or problems to deal with before I entered into one of these periods, like sleep or meditation, yeah. or Exercise. Can you maybe you know, expand on that? I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Can yeah. Or how that? No, absolutely. Works. I think that uh, that that it is it is a wasted opportunity if uh, there's sort of different levels of processing, and uh, that ranges. There are many different ways to frame this. Uh, you know, uh, Daniel. 
Kahneman, who wrote, uh, you know, this is thinking fast, thinking fast, thinking slow. Talks about system one, system two. People talk about the conscious and subconscious. Uh, but if if you look at talking about pattern recognition, a lot of the uh, breakthroughs, the sort of lateral or oblique discoveries that people make that are non-obvious, uh, they often happen in the showers, they often happen when listening to music, they often happen when, di- when daydreaming, they often happen in the middle of the night in a dream, etc. And you can encourage that by prompting that level of processing with a question before you go to bed. And uh, which is why when, when I journal, it's typically you know five minutes first thing in the morning, five minutes before I go to bed. And um, I also do a little bit of sort of post-game analysis on the day, at the end of the day. Uh, but uh, that's, that's another you know, very, very simple approach for allowing that, uh, those idle CPU cycles, as we think of them as idle when we're sleeping, while it's not totally accurate, uh, to have a problem to chew on. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like when, you know, what, what some people are doing with, with distributed te- distributed technology now, where you might have, say, a, uh, you're, you're trying to, to borrow computing power to look at protein folding. And so Sony will make uh, you know, the, the, the PS3s in a distributed fashion, if people opt in, available for that type of like, offline processing when they're not in use for you know, Call of Duty or whatever. So when you're not in Call of Duty, i.e. your job, uh, you can assign a problem in a very similar way. Uh, to an extremely powerful computer, which is your brain, to work on while you're asleep. And uh, it doesn't always produce uh, breakthroughs, of course, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic practice to get into, and it's, all, it's also something that really doesn't take any extra time. It's not an additive activity. It doesn't displace anything else. One of the things I wanted to make sure we got in this interview is, is, is a little bit about yourself, and, and specifically, it was an excellent book, probably read uh, Robert Greene's Mastery. Yeah. And you know, in it, Greene says, you know, there are kind of three stages to mastery, and the most important is the first one, um, which is, you know, identifying your calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look at you, you're a world-class ballroom dancer, uh, martial artist, uh, you know, life coach. I mean, there, you, you seem to have mastered so many different things. You know, what's your calling? Where's this? Where does it all come from? Um, is this yeah. cultivated? It's definitely cultivated. Uh, I so the calling I think is studying meta learning, so the teaching people how to learn or learning how to learn. What is what is the framework that can be imposed on any skill? That is my calling: is to study that, test that, research that, and then hand that toolkit to as many people as possible. And it's absolutely a learned skill. I remember when I was in, uh, in high school, I had to leave my Spanish class because it was too hard for me. And I concluded I was bad at Spanish and I'm bad at languages. And a lot of people make these decisions in you know, junior high or high school. They carry with them for the rest of their lives. You know, they have someone make fun of their singing. Oh, I'm a terrible singer. I can't sing. And they carry that for decades. And for me, that happened with language learning. And then I... I took a year abroad in Japan as an exchange student, and I had it, it wasn't an optional activity. I had to learn Japanese. I was going to a Japanese high school, and I used judo textbooks, and I deconstructed ways of approaching characters so that I could learn how to read and write, and came back, and I realized that you know, I'd gone from Japanese 1 to Japanese level 6 at, at my high school in six months. And I was like, okay, well, now I need to really reconsider this bad at languages conclusion that I reached. 
It wasn't bad at languages. It was that I had a bad set of instructions. I had a bad recipe. Uh, so I think my calling is uh, to master the art of meta-learning. Because a lot of people, there are people who will look at the various areas in which I experiment. So it's like, all right, he's taking muscle biopsies and implanting glucose monitors and spending time with black market chemists and like NFL combine trainers. And then he's doing this startup stuff. This guy's a jack of all trades. And on some level, that's true. But what's missed when they, they miss the layer on top of that, which is the meta-learning. There is a common thread and there is a common goal, which is figuring out what are the untested assumptions? Uh, what are the best practices that I can test, that I can even attempt the opposite of? Right? Like the deadlift, you know, perfect example. It's, you have people who will say, well, you know, the, your strongest range of motions is from the knee ups. So you want to do rack pulls and all this stuff. And, uh, but you find someone like Barry Ross in Los Angeles who's produced multiple world champions, and he pulls from the floor up to just below the knee. It's just a few inches, and then they drop the bar. And they do that two to three times, that's the full set. They do less than five minutes of total time under tension per week. And I put almost 120 pounds on my deadlift in like eight to ten weeks. It's I did the same thing yeah. on, on your recommendations, it's, in fact. It's, it's, it's insane. unbelievable. It's insane. And uh, you know, I would encourage, and if you know, Socrates would say the same thing, this is not a new recommendation, but for people who really want to open their mind to what is possible in every sphere of their lives, uh, particularly if you're male, but not exclusively, get extremely strong. You know, read, and I'm sure you can find it, people have talked about it online, but the effortless superhuman chapter in the four-hour body on the deadlift. Just get, you will not gain a lot of mass, probably less than 10 pounds, and you could add like 100 to 200 pounds on your deadlift. Do that, and the, the lens through which you view everything will be different. It'll be like looking at the matrix. And I think that uh, you know, the, one of my guiding tenets, if I had one, would be, quote from Mark Twain, which is, you know, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. So when, when you've reached a cheery consensus of any type, it's time to be like, well, wait, like, let, me, let me just time out and ask, what do we all believe is true? And, and run through and just ask for each of them, what if the opposite were true? Um, the question I wanted to ask is, so if you spend so much time analyzing, improving, when do you get to the state of equilibrium? Because otherwise you end up with your monkey mind focusing on, on you and, try, and, and trying to tweak all the bits and pieces. When do you get to the point where you say, okay, you know, I've got to the kind of status quo, or is there no status quo? Is it all about constant improvement? <laughs> I'm very aggressive and very competitive. I think that, it, well, there's, there's sort of a subtext to that question that I think is important, which is related to... Uh, satisfaction or dissatisfaction uh, I, I, I don't think that constant seeking constant improvement and dissatisfaction have to go hand in hand so I feel like if you're not getting stronger you're getting weaker if you're not getting younger you're getting older if you're not getting further away from death you're getting closer and there's I, no I, equilibrium I the, the, the physical that like the biological system generally doesn't work that way. I mean, there, there are some forms of homeostasis the body seeks to achieve, but I think that uh, I'm constantly trying to improve. It doesn't mean I'm trying to improve everything, but I'm trying to improve something. And uh, however, the lucid dreaming, some type of mindfulness practice, which can be jujitsu, it can be transcendental meditation, 
doesn't need to be you know, staring at a candle flame in your mind's eye. Not, that's not designed for everyone. <laughs> um, although you can use apps like Headspace or Calm, which are very effective for people who otherwise can't sit still for 10 minutes. Uh, when, you, when you develop, when you allocate time for some type of appreciation, that is how you reach equilibrium with the drive for achievement. And when you find someone who is solely focused on achievement and has not created the bandwidth or time uh, or activities for appreciation, they're usually pretty miserable. And uh, I mean, I'm sure you guys know a lot of very successful, financially successful people. Certainly, I, I know lots of very financially successful people who are utterly miserable. And I think the, the danger in pursuing that game exclusively is that you get to a point where you have all, you have all the money that could possibly solve your problems and you realize that it doesn't solve all your problems. So you're solving the wrong problems. And that's why I think some of the richest people are the most miserable. Because when people have less money, they can hold out with the hope that money will fix these intrinsically sort of existential or physical or emotional or psychological problems. Uh, but when you, when you reach the pinnacle, then you're like, wait a second. I still have this whole set of problems. I thought that an extra X amount of dollars per year would have solved this. Lo and behold, no, you still have the work to do. So uh, I think that you know, developing a holistic set of practices that, that appreciates the, the full human, including the body, which is, is a, it's, it is your machine. Um, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you can't just take care of the, you know, the driver, i.e. the mind. Like, you need the Ferrari, so you should really care for it. Uh, but I, th I think that the way you reach equilibrium or a, f a sensation of balance is by having the appreciation and a set of activities and practices for that, and then uh, a set of ac activities uh, and, and behaviors for uh, achievement. Um, yeah, I, I think just one thing I'd add to it is, is, and I think something that you and Josh have taught me is just to love the process. So, you know, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're working, you're working, you're working, but you, it's not even stopping and smelling the roses, but it's enjoying the path Definitely. And, and loving the path. No, absolutely. And I think that it's, it's perhaps cliched you know, to say life is, life is a journey, not a destination. But uh, at, the, at the end of the day, I, I think from a very strictly pragmatic standpoint, you have to focus on the process because due to good or bad luck, you can get a... You can get a bad result after a very good process. You can get a great result after a very bad process. Right? So your, your method of investing could be covering your eyes and you know, throwing a dart at a dartboard with you know, a list of companies on it, and you could get lucky and have a great outcome, but that doesn't make that a good process. And vice versa, you could do all the research in the world, and there's some blind spot that you couldn't have identified, and you end up with a bad result. Uh, but the way that you, the way that you end up I think being proud of uh, how you are building is by refining and trying to have the most perfect process possible. And uh, that also, I think, prevents a lot of the sort of depression and malaise that can come from bad outcomes, which are just part of the game. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, and particularly in financial markets. What's interesting in financial markets is is losing, even if you lose only a small amount of the time, that losing part, the pain of that far outweighs the benefits of when you're actually making any money. Yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a really good book called uh, 
that I enjoyed anyway, called What I Learned Losing a Million Dollars, which looks at sort of the psychological dynamics of making and losing money and what happens when you personalize those or attribute to talent what should not be attributed to talent or lack thereof. Uh, but what I realized, for instance, uh, when we were talking earlier about how I realized I was not well-suited for the public markets, personally, if I'm the one doing the, the managing of that, is uh, I realized that exactly that, that a small loss, uh, the magnitude of that negative emotion was exponentially larger than even if I made five times that amount positively. And as a result, I didn't have the stomach to invest enough where a reasonable rate of return would be meaningful to me. And I was like, on the pro and con list, that makes that ill-suited to my temperament and psychology. Uh, but like, in a very oddly enough, you know, you, people might say, well, well, you don't have the risk tolerance. It's like, no, no, no. I don't have the appetite for that type of risk. But I can do a binary investment in a startup where it's going to be 0 or 10x or 100x. I have no problem with that. I'm much more comfortable with that because between the investment and the outcome, I'm prevented from making bad decisions. Yeah, that's right. Because in, in private investing, you don't get the choice of marking to market. You don't have to worry about, you know, am I, off, you know, am I losing 10% today, tomorrow, whatever it is. It's just like, I'm in it for the ride. I've made my decision. And the payoff is that. The loss is that. And that's it. I'm done. That's it. Right. Exactly. And... Uh, I think, I think investing is a good metaphor for life. I mean, it's allocation. It's allocation of resources. And uh, sort of bringing it back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, it's, it's a mistake to view your, your primary and only currency as capital. I think time and mobility, these all determine the actual value of your capital. Because if you don't have time, you can't exchange that money for experiences. And what's the capital, your capital is your quality of life, I guess? in some way, shape, or form, and all of those are the currencies that you trade for that? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Great. Tim, well, thanks very much, and Mark, thanks a lot. I think it's been really fascinating. Yeah, and my pleasure. Thanks really for having it. me. Absolutely. Cheers. Hope you enjoyed that chat, everyone. And if you'd like more on investing, hedge funds, finance, etc., etc., uh, you might enjoy a number of the interviews that I have done for the Tim Ferriss Show, including Peter Thiel, who is a co-founder of PayPal, First Money into Facebook, or Arnold Schwarzenegger on his real estate empire and how Twins became his most profitable movie, for instance, for him personally. And you can find all of that at 4hourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. 4hourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. And then for Real Vision, Real Vision TV, that's what you just listened to, go to realvisiontv.com. And if you use the code TIM, T-I-M, you can get $100 off. So it's not $400 a year, it's $300 a year. I don't make anything from it. I just think they're doing very interesting work. So realvisiontv.com, code TIM. And as always, thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. This episode of The Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by 99designs. 99designs is the world's largest online marketplace of graphic designers. And I have used 99designs for years, including 
to get cover concepts for The 4-Hour Body, which went on to become number one New York Times, number one Wall Street Journal. It was a huge hit. And here's how it works. And you can check everything out, including some of my competitions. You can see these book covers and so on at 99designs.com forward slash Tim. Whether you need a logo, a car wrap, a web design, an app, a thumbnail, a t-shirt, whatever, you go to 99designs.com you describe your project and then within a week or less you have tons of designers around the world who compete for your business and submit different ideas and designs and drafts you have an original design that you love or you pay nothing it is fantastic i have used it i have mentioned it before including in the four hour work week as a resource check it out 99designs.com forward slash tim and if you use that link you'll be able to see what i've done on the platform you will also get 99 dollars as an upgrade for free, which will get you more designs, more submissions. So check it out. And until next time, thank you for listening.